happened. And that's exactly what a crowd did that witnessed this miracle in Jerusalem. Now, the good, good thing about this, of course, is that Peter did not allow the crowd to focus on him as the person who did the miracle, and he didn't allow them to focus on the miracle itself, but he caused them to focus on the one who actually performed the miracle, and that is Jesus, the Jesus that's in every miracle. We have a lot of people today, um, I hesitate to call them charlatans, but there are a lot of people today going around and, and, and talking about how they can heal. Well, they can't. The Lord does the healing. The Lord does the miracles. Now, we have doctors that do some healing, but they're not standing up there claiming to have the power of God coursing through them. Well, at least not most of them. <laughs> but here we saw a bona fide miracle. Now, for the past several weeks that we've talked, we walked slowly through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. And we've been developing the foundations of the church of Jesus Christ. And in the first two chapters, we, we find many of the important building blocks that the church today is built upon. Now, in the third chapter, the pace picks up just a little bit. As the apostles follow the command that they received from Jesus, according to Acts 1.8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, as I mentioned last week, the teachings and the preachings of Christ were validated by the miracles that he performed. And in a similar way, the teachings and preaching of the apostles were validated by miracles such as this one in Jerusalem. Now, the first half of chapter 3 tells the story of the miracle that God did through Peter. And then the second half of chapter 3 records the sermon that Peter preached to the crowd that was drawn to the miracle. So I want to invite you to, to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. And we're going to read as we go along. I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you right now. But I, want to, I just want you to have your finger there because I want you to follow along as we read through the story today. Now last week in chapter 2, in the 43rd verse... You might recall that Luke referred to some wonders and signs. And here in chapter 3, we're going to see some of those wonders and signs. And this miracle that we're looking at today occurs for three reasons. First of all, it illustrates Luke's reference to signs and wonders from chapter 2. Secondly, it introduces Peter's sermon that is to follow and then number three, it sets in motion the first major persecution that will be experienced by the church, and that'll probably be the subject as we begin chapter four next week. But there are three things I want us to see here. First, the poor beggar. Now, as this story opens up, John and Peter are being faithful to their Jewish customs of going to the temple for prayer at about the ninth hour which is 3 o'clock p.m. As they approach what is known as the beautiful gate at the temple, they encounter a poor beggar. Read, reading in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 
And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those who were entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. In Acts 4, verse 22, it tells us, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 2 tells us here today in chapter 3 that he was lame from birth. So for at least 40 years, this man had suffered from some paralytic disease or deformity, and he had never walked in his life. Begging was likely to be his only means of making a living. People, as they were on their way to the temple, would be prepared to donate to the temple treasury. So the gate of the temple was a good place to hang out for begging. Besides, giving a few pennies to this poor man and others like him was a great way for people to uh, impress God on their way to the temple. Now, as Peter and John came up to the temple gate, the beggar calls out to them asking for money. So we read on verses 4 to 6. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, this scripture tells us that that Peter directed his gaze at the beggar, as did John. And that was probably something that was not, not often done. Most time, people probably walked up, and those that were going to give just dropped something in a, in a box or something and moved on. They didn't even look at the beggar. In fact, they didn't want to lower themselves. But the fact that Peter and John looked right at him, first of all, had to raise the beggar's hope that he was about to get something donated. He thought they would contribute something, and they did, just not what he was expecting. Uh, for me, it's kind of interesting here that Peter and John had no money. Uh, There was surely money passing through the the people's hands as they contributed to the new church that was being formed, but apparently none of it found its way to the pockets of the apostles. They were living by faith, and I think that was their desire, to live by faith and depend on the Lord for their daily bread. Now, because of that, Peter didn't have what the man wanted, but he did have what the man needed. This, This man's situation provides us a good lesson. It helps us realize how few of the things that we really need, we get with money. For example, we don't get health with money. We don't get happiness. We've been told that since we were children. You don't buy happiness. We don't get a good marriage from money. We don't get wise children from money. Certainly not a relationship with God. And that's what this man needed, was his relationship. That relationship, which he needed most, he was about to receive. Now, there's a story from early in the church's birthing. It's a a poignant illustration of wealth versus true wealth. It involves St. Thomas Aquinas. He was in Rome, walking along the street with a Roman Catholic cardinal. And the cardinal saw a beggar reaching into his pocket. He pulled out a silver coin and gave it to the beggar. And he turned to Aquinas, the great doctor of the church, 
and said, Well, Thomas, fortunately we can no longer say as Peter did, Silver and gold have I none. St. Thomas replied, Yes, that's true, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Stand up and walk. He saw the truth of there that the money didn't do anything for him. It was the power of God. Money's not where the true power in life resides. And yet it seems so many people today, even, even our churches, spend so much effort on getting more of it. The issue is how is the money that we do have, that God has provided, how is it used to impact people spiritually and materially that point them to Christ? Move on in our story, beginning in verse 6b, we see a powerful Savior. I have to find 6b. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter didn't have money to give, but as he said, he gave him what he did have, the power of Jesus Christ. And Peter took him by the hand and pulled him to his feet. And miraculously, this is why I had you stand up, Peter pulls him to his feet, and this is a guy, remember, who had never walked. And as he pulls him to his feet, he is strengthened in his feet and ankles, and he doesn't just stand there, he begins walking and leaping and praising God. Now, humanly speaking, this man should not have possibly been able to respond to Peter's command to rise up and walk. Remember, he had never walked in his life. His legs should have been atrophied and weak from 40 years of non-use and inactivity. And even if Peter had managed to get him up on his feet, he should have crumpled right back to the ground. This actually would have been a kind of a cruel thing for Peter to do if he had not been absolutely confident that God was going to heal this man. The beggar followed him in through the beautiful gate into the temple where he continued to praise God. And the people there recognized him as the beggar that was, had been sitting outside the gate. They had just passed him on their way in. Now he, here he was walking and leaping and giving thanks to God. Often some of the so-called miracles that we see today can be explained away either physically or they can be explained away psychologically. But this one could not be explained right away. It was instantaneous healing in a man who had never walked in his life. And not only was his body healed, but miraculously when he was pulled to his feet, he knew how to walk. He, he should have had the muscle tone and the walking experience of little Emma back there, which is none. He had never walked before. He didn't have the muscle strength or the muscle tone to do that. How many babies have you ever seen that were born walking? <laughs> Some of them seem to be born talking, but... <laughs> yeah, this miracle fulfilled four characteristics of a biblical miracle. 
First, it was a result of God's sovereign choice. Second, it glorified Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it was instantaneous. And fourthly, it was a complete miracle. He didn't just make him, his muscles start to improve and over a period of time he learned to walk. He was healed completely immediately. That's the miracle. That's the first half of chapter 3. The second half of the passage, though, speaks to a very persuasive message from Peter. In Acts chapter 4, verse 16, Peter and John's critics gave one of the best assessments of what had happened to this paralyzed man. It said, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Notable and undeniable. Now, since God is the only one who can work miracles, it's undeniable that God worked through Peter and John to perform this miracle. And then Peter did six things that produced conviction through his powerful message. The first of which, he denied personal credit. Peter and John responded to the crowd by directing credit for the miracle to God, not to themselves. There wasn't any, see what I did, or see what we did. It was, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we've made him walk? Peter asked the crowd, why are you looking at us as if we had something to do with this? Instead of calling a press conference to explain their role in the miracle, they immediately deflected credit away from themselves. Secondly, then, Peter directed all attention to Jesus in verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Rather than allowing the people to to focus on the miracle, Peter talked about Jesus. You guys remember him. Speaking to a Jewish audience, he used Isaiah's term for the Messiah, from Isaiah 53, verse 11. Servant. Then in verse 14, Peter refers to Jesus as the Holy and Righteous One which was also an Old Testament term for God. Peter's telling these Jews that Jesus is God's servant, the Old Testament Messiah. And it was he who was responsible for healing this beggar, not us. Then thirdly, Peter denounced the people's sin. He launched into one of the boldest sermons ever recorded. And he uses the word you four times. And he uses the word to confront his listeners with the Jews' sin of murdering God's son. It says, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. 
Peter knew that for these people to repent and believe the gospel, they would first have to acknowledge their guilt before God and their need of a Savior. He wanted them to understand that the Messiah they had killed just a short time ago is the same one who now is alive from the dead and working miracles in their midst. So let's look a little more closely at Peter's denunciation. In verse 13b, he says, His servant, Jesus, who you delivered over. The first thing that the Jews did was deliver Jesus, God's servant, God's son, the Messiah, over to Pontius Pilate as a criminal. Verse 14, he says, But you denied the holy and righteous one. Secondly, they, they denied the holy and righteous one. And you may recall in John 19, 15, Pilate asked him, says, Shall I crucify your king? You remember their response? We have no king but Caesar. Continuing on in verse 14, he said, You ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Rather than allow a convicted murderer to be punished for his crimes, the Jews set Barabbas free in order to put Jesus, an innocent man, to death. Matthew 27, 21 records, The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Again, he moves on in verse 15. And you killed the author of life. They killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. Again, Peter is focusing their attention on the resurrection. You delivered, denied, destroyed, or killed. Peter leaves no doubt as to who was responsible for the death of the one who had just healed this lame beggar. It was the Jews. You remember all the hubbub that was raised a number of years ago when Passion of the Christ was released? And how many of the Jews were incensed because the movie pointed to the Jews at the time as being the ones responsible for putting Jesus to death, taking some of the heat off of the Romans. Peter here points at the Jews and says, you killed him. But you know, it was our sin today, as much as theirs, that put Jesus on the cross. We stand just as guilty as the Jews then, or the Romans did in his day, because Jesus died for all sin, all time, including ours. Fourthly, Peter then declared the power of the resurrection in verses 15 to 19. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I think I mentioned earlier in our study of Acts that all of the sermons that are recorded in Luke's book here are centered around the resurrection. And this is a good example. The gospel is the death and resurrection 
of Jesus. If God exercised enough power to raise Jesus from the dead, how hard would it be for him to heal this lame beggar? I wouldn't think very difficult for God. Verse 15 here contrasts the Jews taking life from Jesus and God giving it back. Jesus' resurrection is central to this miracle of the lame beggar receiving restored life. After missing a major part of life for over 40 years, the miracle was not the issue. Christ was the issue. And now Christ is a major part of this man's life. Peter was saying that it was faith in Jesus that allowed the beggar to walk, not anything he or John had done. And then now continuing on, verses 17 to 19, Peter takes a bit of a softer tone. And his approach is a little bit softer in issuing a loving appeal to accept God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Verses 17 to 19, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. I love the way he says that. That your sins may be blotted out. He acknowledged that the Jews and their leaders had killed Jesus out of ignorance. And Jesus, in Luke 23, verse 34, asked the Father... To hold their, not to hold their sin against them. Remember that? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. According to verse 18 here, Jesus' suffering was in the plan of God as spoken by the prophets. And in verse 19, he tells them that they can be forgiven and refreshed if they just repent so that their sins can be blotted out. Fifthly, Peter demanded then personal repentance. Verse 19, he just said, Repent, therefore, and turn back. See, ultimately, it wasn't Peter's goal to, to swamp his listeners in a sea of guilt. But he wanted to convince them of their need to repent and be saved. But he also operated on the premise that bad news is what makes good news so good. So first, he reminded them that sin comes before repentance. Repentance is not just one step in the salvation process, but it's part of changing one's mind from not believing in Jesus to believing in Jesus. Making repentance something it is not is just as dangerous as trying to leave it out of the picture of salvation altogether. If a person has not truly repented, he has not truly believed. You can't just stay on the path of non-belief in Jesus and say you do believe. You have to first repent, turn, and start in the opposite direction. Changing one's mind is the first step to changing behavior.
So what? So what brings us to the sixth thing that Peter did? He described reasons for repentance. Verses 19 to 24. In fact, he listed five reasons for repenting. Reason number one in verse 19, he said that your sins might be blotted out. Blotted out suggests being completely eliminated, wiped away. Our sins are not just covered. They have been taken away. That's a supernatural thing. Because it says God remembers them not. But God also doesn't forget. And yet, he takes those sins completely away. Forgiveness comes when we repent of sins and God takes them away. Reason number two in verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In addition to personal refreshment coming when sin is taken away, there's also an invitation here to participate in the refreshing that will come to the entire earth during the millennium, when Christ has returned, when righteousness floods the earth. Reason three, also in verse 20, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus Those who know Christ will rejoice at his second coming. But Revelation 6.16 tells us that those who don't know will cry out to hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So you want to be one who knows Jesus when he comes back. Reason number four, verse 23. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed. Reason number four four is that you might escape judgment. Moses prophesied that a prophet would come to judge all people. That prophet is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Repentance means going toward him now rather than turn away from him when he comes a second time. Reason number five, so that you might realize your blessing, verses 25 and 26. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The Jews had rejected the Messiah, but God did not reject them. By turning to this prophet, they will receive the blessing that came to them as described in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. That's where we get in the door. (laughs) Whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, rich or poor, the miracle of new birth, new life, is offered to all who will repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what? So I ask this morning, have you repented 
and turned toward the reef. I pray you have. But the final question is, if you have not, would you do so? Will you do so even now? Would you pray with me? Father, again, we're thankful that you have provided us our Bibles, your word in a form that we can read, we can study, we can understand. And there's a lot of material in here for us to study, Lord, a lifetime. And then we still probably don't know it all by any means. And yet you also condemn.